Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. This will be hard for me to get through, so be patient with me. Um, many of you know Craig and Aaron Bomier. They've been attending here church for probably six years or so. And um, yesterday, uh, they were at a birthday party, a family birthday party, a pool party. And uh, tons of kids running around, eating, celebrating four birthdays, you know. And uh, they were... Uh, missing their son Emmerich and so they went and they found Emmerich lying in the pool he is about a year and a half old I believe and um, they took Emmerich out of the pool immediately started doing CPR on Emmerich called 911 the ambulance came and took Emmerich to the Emmerich to the hospital uh, where they restored a heartbeat Uh, Emmerich was without a heartbeat for probably about 45 minutes and he wasn't breathing either but they restored a heartbeat, and um, by God's grace, many of his organs started to take off and flourish in really uh, spectacular ways, but they still had to feed him oxygen and put him on a respirator for breathing. Uh, Got to go and be with the family last night at the hospital, and uh, as you can imagine, this is traumatizing, and uh, Emmerich is, is still on, on a, he, he's unconscious. He is still on a breathing machine. And this morning at about 8.30, about half an hour ago, they were going to update the family on things that they are seeing. Um, the big concern right now is his brain activity. When the brain goes without oxygen for 45 minutes, that's a really long time. And so I want to take some time to pray for them. And What I want to do is I just want to spend a moment of silence and have you lift up Emmerich and your prayers and the Boehmers. You can imagine how hard this is for mom and dad. If you have been a mom and dad and you've had something happen to your child, you know how hard you are on yourself, how you blame yourself for so many things. And so please pray for them, pray for Emmerich, pray for the family. And uh, we'll take a moment to do that and then I will close this in prayer in a little bit. So please Take this moment to pray.
Lord God, we come to you because <laughs> where else can we turn? You are the great and awesome God who is all-powerful and can do all things. And so we come as a church crying out to you to restore Emmerich. Crying out to you, God, to provide healing for him, God. We praise you for all the things you've already done, Lord. The, the miraculous things the doctors already shared about the organs firing back up and operating well. And God, we pray that you continue your healing hand, especially for Emmerich's brain, Lord God. Lord, we pray for Craig and Aaron. Cannot imagine what they're going through. Can't imagine the guilt they may feel from not noticing something, Lord. And so God, pray that you would help them to take comfort in you, that they would be able to forgive themselves, God, we've all been there. Lord, that they would be able to find the God of all comfort as a near and present reality in this time of suffering and pain, Lord. Help us as a church body to continue to love them well, God. Lord, we are so thankful that you are a sovereign God and that even this is not outside your sovereign hand. Meaning that while we may not understand why it happens, that there is a reason, Lord. And that you will be glorified through this, God. And so, Lord, help us to rest in your unfailing love, in your ultimate wisdom, and in your sovereign plan. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to get updates on how Emmerich is doing, I would just encourage you to sign up to be on the prayer chain at Jacob's Well. Uh, there may be a box on the back of the connection card here. Um, if there isn't, just write in prayer chain, put your email address, uh, and we will be sending out emails uh, with updates about how Emmerich is doing. But regardless, please pray for Emmerich, and uh, we'll provide you an update next Sunday at the very least. So. Today we're continuing our series through the Apostles' Creed, and to be honest with you, I think this is such a timely part of a timely profession that we're making just in light of what's going on with Emmerich and the Boehmers, in which we come together and we confess who we are, uh, who we are a holy Catholic church, and that there is a communion of the saints. And so... Once again, I want to ask you, church, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You probably do not need the statistics, but I'll give them to you anyways. In April of this year, four months ago, uh, the Gallup poll did research and they released their findings. They they saw that from 1937 to 1976, over that 40-year time span, church membership was around 70%. But over the past 20 years, church membership had declined drastically down to 50%. Other polls suggest that Sunday church attendance is down to around 28%. Many of the Americans that do church do church less frequently, less faithfully than they used to. They move from weekly attenders to every other week attenders to when it is convenient attenders. Another Gallup poll showed that about 24% of Americans, only 24% showed up to church three out of eight Sundays um, in a row. This slow fade from the church is something that I think comes from a lot of different things. There's a lot of people who speculate about why people are moving away from the church. Personally, I think one of the reasons is because parents are teaching their children through their decisions that church is not really all that much of a priority. As infants, parents usually bring their kids to church faithfully and regularly, but as the children grow and as life gets busier, church gets put on the back burner and gets replaced by things like kids' sports or camping or relaxing weekend or sleeping in. To add to this, there has been a movement towards a churchless Christianity in which a growing number of Christians believe that you can be a faithful Christian without being connected and committed to a local body of believers. John Calvin says, such Christians are traitors and apostates. I probably would not speak that strong, but it is obvious from the New Testament that you cannot fulfill the commands of the New Testament and the heart of the New Testament without being connected to Christ's church. Again, there may be many reasons why people are are fading from the valuing of Christ's church. Could be because they have been hurt by the church, by clergy of the church or by other people of the church. And so you have distanced yourself from the church as a means of self-protection. Probably our dismissal of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day, and to honor it and keep it holy. Probably because church has become to us more a means of entertainment than it has been a means of worshiping God and communing with his people. Whatever the reasons are, whatever the statistics are, What is irrefutable is that there is a devaluing of the church today in America. And to be honest with you, I see this struggle in my own heart. Believe it or not, there are Sundays I do not want to come to church. There are Sundays that I would much rather worship my other gods, 
my gods of sleep, my gods of going to the beach, my gods of just simply lounging around the house. I think this is something that all of us struggle with. Now, you may be saying, well, what's the big deal, Pastor Dan? Why is the church such a big deal? Why is this something that should be such a high priority for us? And it's because of how Christ views his church. Ephesians 5.25 says this. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Can you hear the love of Christ for his church oozing through these words? And then it says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, and then listen closely, but nourished and cherishes it just as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of his body. You know, it's so interesting there at the end saying we are members of his body. It's saying that we are like a human body with Christ as the head. And, and if we are a toe and we are not connected to Christ's church, we are like a toe that has been severed and put away from our body. We so desperately need the body for healing and for wholeness. And so Christ has called us to have his heart, to cherish the church, to devote ourselves to the church, not only because Christ cherishes and devotes himself to the church, but because as toes, as members of the body, apart from the church, we slowly die in our faith. And so today my hope is that through God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, that I might fan into flames, that the Spirit might fan into flames our love and passion and devotion for the church, even though the church has much corruption in it, even though the church may be boring at times, even though the church is not as entertaining as what you can find on TV, my hope is that we would cherish the church because Christ cherishes the church. And so if you would please open up to Ephesians chapter 2, we will be looking at verses 11 through 22 today. If you have a red Bible in the seat in front of you, it's page 976 in the red Bible. Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul uh, from Rome to the church of Ephesus. Paul spent several years in Ephesus preaching and proclaiming the gospel in that whole region. And he is writing back to the church from a Roman prison to tell them what it looks like to live as the church of Jesus Christ in a very difficult world. And so that's what he is communicating to them. And so follow along, please, as I read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, 
so making peace, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we come today confessing our bitterness towards your church, hatred towards your church, or at the very best, indifference towards your church. And as we read these words in Ephesians, we realize that that's not how you look at the church, that you love and cherish the church. God, pray that you will help us to have your heart within us, not because the church is perfect, because she is far from perfect, but because we are a part of that church that you love and cherish and delight in. And so God, help us to have your heart for your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. My hope, again, is that to stir our affections for Christ's church. And the way that I hope to do this from this passage is to understand who Christ's church is. Is. And as we understand who Christ's church is, we also understand who we are. Because if you are a Christian, you are a part of Christ's church. As the children's song says, the church is not the steeple, it is the people. And so if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you are a part of Christ's church. And so we want to study who Christ church is. And as we study who Christ church is, we study who we are as a part of Christ church. The first thing that we see in this passage is that we are the Catholic church. When I, grew, when I was growing up, I grew up in a Roman Catholic home. And we were pretty staunch. We would go to church every Sunday. Uh, one Sunday, my sister uh, either was out of town for a sporting event or had a sleepover or something. But she went to a Protestant church with one of her friends. And when she came home, she told me, she said, hey, you know, they say the Apostles' Creed too. I'm like, oh, that's great. And the, she says, and they, they, they profess the Catholic Church as well. And so we're there going, whoa, like they know we're right. Like they all know that we're the right church and they're the wrong church, which, it, you know, kind of puffs us up a little bit, but also made us kind of confused of like, if they know they're the wrong church and we're the right church, why aren't they leaving that church and coming to our church? What I didn't understand is that there is a difference between a big C Catholic church and a little C Catholic church. The little C Catholic church reverse, refers to the universal church, uh, that, that, that the church throughout the world and throughout time is united as one church. The uppercase C refers to the Roman Catholic church, and I didn't understand that as a child, but I do now. And so 
So we profess together that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, some may say, well, why are we using that term Catholic with an asterisk saying universal? Why don't we just say universal to make it a whole lot less confusing? And some churches have done that, and it's understandable for sure. But just remember that the Apostles' Creed was created 1,500 years prior to the popularization of the term Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was popularized in the 19th century. Uh, the, the Apostles' Creed was at least before the 4th century. And so for 1.5 millenniums, they were using this term Catholic. So it seems like they may have dibs on the term. And so we continue to profess that we believe in one holy Catholic church. And so as we look at the book of Ephesians, Paul is explaining that Christ's church is Catholic. It is universal. It is one. You see, prior to Christ coming, the people of God were identified as Israel, which was mostly composed of Jews. But now the people of God has been expanded to include Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people, which include most of you and me as well. And Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus again and again that the Gentile are as much a part of the people of God, Christ's church, as are the Jews. And that's what he's doing here in this passage. Look at verse 11 with me again. Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. That's how they identified as Jews, as Israel. They circumcised themselves and their children. He says, remember that you were, you were, past tense, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is talking to Gentiles. He's saying, you were alienated from the people of God. You were alienated from the people to whom God has given his promises of grace and salvation. Verse 13, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one has made us Catholic, has made us universal, has made us united, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This dividing wall of hostility that Paul is referring to is most likely referring to a wall that was was in the temple. Matter of fact, we have a picture up here, and if my laser pointer works today, you'll see up here, this uh, this is the temple of the Old Testament. And in this area, within this wall, is where Israel gathered to worship God. Here is, here's the holy place. Uh-oh, my laser pointer's going. And in here is the holy of holies. And here you see this broken up wall. Oh no, my laser pointer's going. Um, you guys see the broken wall there that kind of has dashes? Um, that was a wall, and outside of that wall is where the Gentiles were to stay. They weren't allowed to go past that wall to go and to worship the God of Israel. Matter of fact, there was, there was inscription on the wall that said, if you pass this wall, you only have yourself to blame for your own death. This wall was a wall of hostility. Matter of fact, in the book of Acts, I don't know if you remember this, but, but the Jews accused Paul of bringing a Gentile, a Greek, 
through that wall. And so they capture him. They start to beat him. And they're trying to kill him. And he is rescued by Roman soldiers. And so this was a wall of hostility. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus has broken down that wall of hostility and taken these two people and made them one. He has unified them, Jew and Gentile, together in one Catholic universal church. As you go on in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, which is another passage that I could have preached this from, says that uh, he, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. How do we walk in a manner worthy? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You see how it's impossible to fulfill these commands outside of Christ's church. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says this. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so Paul's point is that there is now unity in the people of God which is called the church. When I was in college, my dad lived up in Alaska, and uh, he was flying me up there for two weeks to come and visit with him, and it ended up that he was going to have a business trip the first week, which I was fine with, and so I flew up there and was going to just hang out by myself for a week, drive around, um, and then he was going to join me, and we were going to hang out together the second week. Well, I got up there, and I was in the baggage claim in Anchorage, Alaska, and I had my guitar, um, because you guys know I'm a talented musician. And so I had my guitar, and on my guitar case, I had this, this, this sticker that said, A2J, addicted to Jesus, okay? I know it's cheesy, but it's true. Um, but anyway, so they saw that, and, and these kids, there's some kids there, and they come over to me, and they're like, hey, we like this sticker. I'm like, oh, great, yeah, cool. What I, and what I find out is that these are all kids from a local church, and uh, they, they came to pick up one of their other friends. They're part of this youth group together. And so they asked me what I was up to, what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm kind of alone this week. And they said, well, why don't you come hang out with us? And so I went over to their house, hung out with them. We went on a hike together. I remember there was this midweek kind of singing worship service that they had. And they invited me. I was like, yeah, I'd love to come. And so I went there. And at first it was, it was pretty normal to me, okay? But then they said, it's flag time. I'm like, what is flag time? I've never heard about flag time. And so they all run to this chest in the back and they open it up and they have flags and they have those uh, streamers, you know, that they use in like high school dances. And so they start singing and they're, they're running around the sanctuary with these flags and with these little streamers doing this. And I'm looking at them thinking, this is crazy. I've never seen anything like this before. But you know what? These are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I rejoice that I get to be with them and worship our great God with them, whether it's with streamers or not with streamers. You know, we all have unique preferences and opinions and backgrounds and theologies, and sometimes we allow these differences to be walls in the church of Jesus Christ. We forget that the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. Not only between Jews and Gentiles, but between Hispanics and whites, between Republicans and Democrats, between Presbyterians and Baptists, between ribbon wavers and non-ribbon wavers. The dividing wall of hostility has been demolished. 
Again, this does not mean that we do not have our own unique backgrounds and understandings, but it does mean that regardless of our differences, the people of God are one Catholic universal community. Now with that said, there are times that we need to divide from those who wear the name Christian because they are not truly a Christian. There are those who wear the term Christian but deny the fundamentals of the faith, deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is constantly rebuking those in the New Testament who wear that name Christian but are not Christian. And the question is, how do we know if they subscribe to the fundamentals of our faith, to the, to the core of the gospel? How do we know if we can partner with them, if they are part of this universal Catholic church? How do we know if we should fellowship with them or, or avoid them? And one of the most helpful things to help us discern that very thing is the Apostles' Creed. This is, a matter of fact, why the Apostles' Creed was written, to draw a dividing line to say anyone who subscribes to these core basic tenets of the gospel, we welcome you. Come, let us fellowship, regardless of our distinctions. But if you do not subscribe to the core of our faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we should have nothing to do with you. And so, we, who are we? We are the Little C Catholic Church, Universal Church. Secondly, Paul shows us that we are the Holy Church. Verse 14, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do this? By abolishing or terminating the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul says, this is so interesting, that Jesus busts down the dividing wall of hostility in the way that Jesus does this according to verse 15 is by abolishing the law and commandments of the Old Testament expressed in the ordinances. This is so fascinating because I don't know if you remember what Jesus said. Jesus said something that seems to be the exact opposite of what Paul says. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to Fulfill them. And so what does Paul mean that Jesus has come and has abolished the law? Well, what Paul is talking about here is not, and by law we're talking about the commands of the Old Testament, okay? What Paul's talking about here is not the moral aspects of the law, right? Like it's still good not to murder. Can we all agree upon that? Right? It's still good not to steal. We all agree upon that. Paul's not talking about the moral aspect of the law. What Paul is talking about is the ceremonial part of the law, which Jesus has completely fulfilled. And because he has fulfilled it, he has abolished it. You see, the ceremonial part of the law included the sacrificial system in which people would go and they would, they would, they would kill animals after animal after animal in order to, to be ceremonially clean so that they could come before a holy God. We see this uh, even in the temple, and again, my, my laser pointer is not going to work here, but, um, but if you look in the inner part of the temple right here, you'll see this is the holy place, 
And then here's a curtain, and in there is the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, uh, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments, but was also the special place of the presence of God. And because of our hostility towards God, and God's hostility towards our sin, this place had very limited access. It could only be accessed by the by the high priest and only once a year after making many sacrifices for his sin and for the sin of others. As a matter of fact, when they went in, they would tie a rope to his ankle just in case he died in the presence of a holy God so that they could pull him back out and give him a proper burial. And so this curtain was a dividing wall, not between Jews and Gentiles, but between a holy God and unholy men. But then we read in Mark chapter 15, as Jesus is dying on the cross, it says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I have read that this curtain was six inches thick. I have read that this curtain is a foot thick. Regardless, that is the thickest curtain I've ever heard of in my entire life. I mean, these curtains are probably, what, a quarter of an inch thick? And yet this curtain was torn in two. It could be no accident. It was a divine plan of God. And the question is, why was the curtain torn in two? Well, because when the curtain was torn in two, it meant that we no longer needed a human high priest to go into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. Because Jesus was the ultimate and final high priest for us. It meant that we no longer need to make sacrifices for our sins to enter into the presence of God because Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice for our sin. It meant that we no longer needed to be made outwardly and temporarily clean through animal sacrifices because we were made internally and eternally clean through the blood of Jesus Christ, allowing us to now enter the presence of God. Because Jesus has not only taken away our sin, but he has given us his righteousness. And he has made us holy by his blood. That's why Paul can say in verse 17 as it continues. says, and Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who were near. For through him, that is Jesus, not animal sacrifices, but the once and eternal sacrifice of Jesus. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to a holy God of the universe because Christ has made us holy. Matter of fact, verse 21, we'll get there in a little bit, but that's what it calls us. It calls us holy, a holy temple. Friends, this view of holiness is different than every other religion on the face of the earth. You see, every other religion teaches us that we must act holy in order to become holy. But what Christianity, what the gospel tells us is that we are made holy by another. And because we are made holy, now we should act holy because we are holy in Jesus. By the blood of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a sacrifice for all of our sins and gave us his righteousness, we are holy. We are a holy Catholic church. Again, not because we are a perfect church, but because we are a washed church. A church washed in the blood of Jesus and given his righteousness so that we together, Jew, Gentile, Republican, Democrat, whatever it might be, 
may be at peace with God. Finally, we see we are the church of communing saints. Much like the term Catholic, the term saint provides a lot of confusion. Some have been taught that saints are these super duper Christians that really none of us could be like. Uh, a friend of mine thinks that saints refers to Jewish Christians, but, but given that Ephesians is addressed to the saints in Ephesus, which was largely Gentile, and the command that we are to equip the saints um, for ministry, meaning not just Jews, but Gentiles, it, it seems as this scripture is saying that saints are all who trust in Christ, that saints are all the Christians. And so who are the saints? They're those who have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. As a matter of fact, what's so interesting is that the Greek word for saints is agios, which is the exact same word used, the Greek word used for holy, the exact same word. Matter of fact, if you look in your passage, uh, it says saint in Ephesians 2.19, that's the word agios. And in Ephesians 2.21, you see the word holy, that's agios as well. And so what it is telling us is that we are saints because we are holy, and we are holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 continues, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so in this passage, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see there's a lot of different spots to write in here. And it's because in this passage, Paul is using three different illustrations to communicate to us the communion of the saints, the relationship between Christians and the church. The first illustration he uses is that we are citizens of a country. Verse 19, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Okay, that's how they were described back in verse 12. He says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Paul is saying that our ultimate citizenship, our primary citizenship, is not as Israelites, it's not as Romans, it's not as Americans, but our primary citizenships is that we are citizens of heaven, that we belong to another kingdom, and we have allegiance to that kingdom above all other kingdoms. The second illustration Paul uses to describe the communion of the saints is that we are members of a household. Verse 19 again in the, set, the, the latter part says, and members of the household of God. Again, Gentiles were not Israelites. And so they could not trace their lineage back to Abraham, which was so important for the Jews. And yet now God has created a new family, the church, a more intimate community than just citizens, a family with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so those around you are not strangers. They are family members if they trust in Christ for their salvation. The third illustration Paul uses to show the communion of the saints, our relation to one another, is stones of a temple. Paul gives the most detail about this illustration, and so I will as well. First off, we find out about the foundation of this temple. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You know, if you want to build a building, the first thing you have to do is lay a strong foundation. This is not new news to you. It wasn't to the people that Paul was writing to. And Paul is 
telling us that there is a strong foundation, which is the apostles and the cornerstone of that foundation on which everything else is lined up. That cornerstone, which everything else depends upon, is Jesus Christ. Secondly, we find out about the walls of this temple. Verse 21, he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together. And so with the foundation of Jesus, uh, the foundation of the apostles, the cornerstone being Jesus Christ, we are being built up as walls of this temple. 1 Peter 2.5, that's also using this illustration, says that we are living stones of the temple of God. And so our communion with the saints, this is amazing, our communion with the saints is not just with the saints in this room during this worship service. And it's not just with the saints that we know outside of this church throughout Green Bay. And it's not just with the saints throughout the entire world. Our communion of the saints is communion with the saints of all time. That somehow, mysteriously, wonderfully, we have a communion with the apostles who are our foundation. That we have a communion with the reformers. That we have a communion with the saints of the 19th century. There is a communion of saints because we are a temple of God for generation after generation after generation. God has built up that wall of living stones to form for himself a temple. And that's the third part that we see, the dwelling of the temple. We, the church, are built up as living stones into a holy temple so that we could be inhabited by another. Verse 22, in him you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so how is it that we have communion with one another? How is it that we have communion with saints throughout the world? How is it that we have communion with saints throughout history? It is because the one who dwelt in the holy of holies now dwells within us both individually and corporately as a church. We are in communion with a holy God because we have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. And as we commune with God, we commune with one another. Let me end with this. Yesterday, I was uh, at, I was at um, the quarry in Howard here, swimming with my oldest son when I got the text message that um, something was wrong in the Bohemir family. Um, and so uh, we loaded up our inflatable kayak really quick, strapped it to the roof, and started driving home. And I, I get more text messages from other people and phone calls giving me updates. Uh, I call Nancy Brooke, who runs our prayer chain ministry, and I say, hey, can you put this out on the prayer chain? Her response was, I already have. So I'm driving, and I get home, and I change, and I'm, I'm coming to the hospital, um, and I am connecting with some elders to say, okay, is there, can we find someone else to preach tomorrow just in case I, I don't go home tonight? And so Ron Young, one of our elders, agreed to preach this morning if I was unable to be here. I get to the hospital, and one, I see one church member in the, in the atrium, and we go upstairs together, and then two more church members come, and then another church member comes, and we all come. Other elders say, would you like me to come and be there? I said, no, let's give them the space. Even though yesterday and still today is a really hard thing to process, 
It's such a beautiful picture of the church, isn't it? Isn't this what the church is supposed to be? I mean, we live in what might be the most isolated and individualistic culture in the history of the world. That, that could be completely true. And into that culture is the church not needed more than ever before. Friends, you can do life on your own, but that's not what God has for you. God has called you to come together, to come into the community of his church because we are a holy church, because we are a Catholic church, and because God has created us that we might commune together as his saints. Let's pray. Lord God, it it strikes me that we take the church for granted. And yet if we did not have the church, we would walk a million miles just to get it. And so, Lord, just because your church is constant, just because you hold her up and just because you have kept her here, God, help us not to take advantage of her, but help us to love her, to love one another, to appreciate her as the gift that she is. We know that you cherish the church. We know that you delight in the church. God, help our affections to match yours. Grow us in obedience. Grow our heart in affection that we might love the church as you love the church and as you have loved us. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded again of the communion that we have with you. And as we have communion with you, we have communion with the saints, both today but also yesterday and throughout the world, God. We praise you for this connection that we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit, God. May we delight in it, rejoice in it, And live in the reality of it, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.